Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I have found a way. I have found a way to torture people. I have found a successful way to introduce a new form of torture for the CIA, and that is to introduce them to the show Virgin River. Okay. I'm going to try and forget Virgin, that. Virgin River. So it's a show that I can overhear my girlfriend listening to right now. Um, it is basically a Hallmark movie in show form on steroids that I have the displeasure of having to watch sometimes. And it may be the worst thing ever filmed and produced and put on a streaming platform of all time. It is cringy, every single moment of it. And uh, I want to jump out of my, my uh, you know third-story apartment whenever, whenever it's on. It is that bad. I think it is a new form of torture that they can introduce and in Guantanamo Bay. Um but yeah, Understood. what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. <laughs> it's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Man, I almost just mispronounced your name after all these all these years. Uh, but what's up, brother? Glad that you're back from Puerto Rico. Chilling, man, as per usual. Glad to be back. Uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. So how was your trip? Uh, it was fun. Um for those of you who may not know, I'm, I'm half Puerto Rican, so I have family out there. You know, so part of this vacation was obviously just um, uh, the ability to go out and you know be with family and stuff like that and have a little vacation. But uh, the main reason why we're out there is because my girlfriend and I are interested in moving to Puerto Rico. We're looking to purchase our first home uh, there for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is, of course, uh, the, um, the weather. It's beautiful there. Another is that, you know, I can work remotely, which is great. There are some tax incentives, but I, I don't really apply for many of them. Um, but just overall, it's a really cool place. So, you know, we wanted to get down there and kind of check it out and get the lay of the land and figure it out. And dude, the housing market in Puerto Rico is insane. It's kind of insane everywhere, really. If, if you're looking to buy a house right now, it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, but it was absolutely insane, man. So as insane as it's, it's very expensive. Well, yeah, everything's a little bit high priced, but you know, coming from New York, you know, everything that would be high priced for everywhere else in the country kind of feels like doable, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I think, uh, New York kind of ruins you for, you know, cost of living where, you know, $300,000 doesn't sound like so much anymore, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I know what you mean, um, man. I was just in Chicago and like, people were telling me about either the rent they pay or how much they're paying for a place there. And I'm like, that's bad, but you don't really know what's bad until you hit either New York or San Fran, New York or San Francisco, San Francisco is, is, it might be a little bit worse than New York, but, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. 
Danny that you know I'm, I guess I'm the um, the libertarian half of this of this podcast and usually it's like the libertarians that go to Puerto Rico for <laughs> yeah. the tax yeah, incentives like so they don't have to pay federal income tax <laughs> and they're like well you can't vote and they're yeah. like well I don't give a fuck I don't care I don't vote anyway <laughs> like yeah all this day uh, I mean like I'm, nice. I'm not going there for the tax reasons and and also just to be clear for everybody like you, you don't just like move to Puerto Rico and like suddenly you don't have to pay Uncle Sam anymore like there's a there's a lot you have to do to make sure that you do it but one of the big ones is you know uh Sue if you're listening uh boy named Sue uh cryptocurrency no capital gain tax on them which is pretty cool you know uh, obviously there's some some like things you have to prove that you're a resident there and like you have to live there for a little while and you know yada yada um but once you get all that squared away and it's not too ridiculous um you can get away with no capital gains taxes a lot of rich people are going there for obvious reasons um and a lot of libertarians are going there i'm just going there because it's beautiful and it's cheaper than new york and you know why the hell not (laughs) but i mean the market is nuts because there's like no inventory meaning there's like as soon as a house goes on the market it's off the market like immediately but then the process by which you try and get this home is like the wild west it's like people don't often have their deeds sometimes the house isn't technically owned by the same person you're buying it from sometimes you buy the structure and you can sell the structure but you don't own the land underneath it it's super wild super weird everything is like unique everything is crazy um but yeah, it's, it's been fun and, you know, f- fingers crossed I find something nice and, you know, maybe I'll be broadcasting from there. Well, um, very cool. All right. So it's been two weeks since we put out our last episode and um, I guess what we're trying to do is catch up on the news because um, I guess since we both been traveling and I haven't really been paying too much attention to a lot of things going on. So using this episode as a way to uh, like collect myself and kind of figure out what has been going on in the world over the past two weeks. And I don't know where, where we should start. Like, do, do you want to talk about Afghanistan first and, and start going into some yeah, other topics? Yeah, and, and yeah, totally. And, and, and I think where I want to start with Afghanistan, and this is kind of a strange transition, but, you know, I was bitching about the housing market in Puerto Rico, but I have this one story that I think would be a really interesting way to kick off what's going on in Afghanistan, and it and it starts with uh, an Air Force uh, um, major uh, who tried to sell his home and lost his life as a result. So, as much as I bitch about my experiences with the housing market, there's nothing as bad as losing your life over it. Um, so, I don't know if you're aware, um, Henry, that this this um, uh, article actually came to us from one of our Patreon members. Shout out Stanislav, um, but it's interesting. Uh, apparently, Afghanistan pilots are being assassinated by the Taliban uh, as the U.S. is withdrawing. And the story goes for this one particular one. Um, this comes from Japan Times, believe it or not. Um, so this Afghanistan uh, Air Force major, uh, his name is, I'm going to butcher it, Dagestir Zamare, I think. Uh, he... The story goes that basically he, he was in a neighborhood that he felt uncomfortable with, he felt unsafe, he was getting a lot of death threats from ostensibly the, the Taliban, right? So this guy decides he's, all right, I'm going to sell my house and I'm going to try and find, you know, use that money to move to a safer area, you know, kind of near the capital. Uh, and this is like a legitimate thing because apparently, you know, the Taliban is offing all of these Air Force pilots. And so one day he goes to meet up with his prospective, um, like his real estate agent, 
which he, who he knew, right? And they were they were like tight. It was legit. But you know, the real estate agent calls him up and says, "Hey, you know, we're having a you know, a prospective buyer who's interested in the home. Like, why don't you come meet me at the office?" So the dude, uh, the Air Force major, he goes with his son over to the office. The son tagged along, and they get there. And instead of a instead of a buyer, it ended up being a gunman. And like pretty much right, you know, right then and there, like without a word, this gunman shoots the real estate agent in the mouth and kills him. And the Air Force major goes to like pull his sidearm out because apparently he was strapped at the time, you know, like fire back. And gunman already, you know, caught the drop on him. He shot him, uh, shot him in the head. and He pretty much died immediately. And uh, the son survived. Um, He was a 14 year old kid. uh, But, you know, the, the father obviously died. Uh, you know, in his arms like that. And, you know, obviously he's real fucked up about it. But, you know, this story is kind of interesting because uh, I think the implications of it is pretty, pretty fascinating. There's there's another story uh, uh, pretty similar. Uh, this dude, Mesud Atal, who was a Black, Hop, uh, Black Hawk helicopter pilot. Uh, and he was on his day off, just kind of chilling, driving around. Uh, this was December 30th. So like at the end of end of last year, um, and he went to go buy fruits apparently for his mom when two motorcycles kind of like pull up on him on both sides. And they, the, the people in the backseat of the, of those motorcycles just start opening fire on him in his car. Apparently the dude got shot 11 times. So it was like once in the face and six times in the right arm and the hand and the rest of them were in his chest. And obviously he died. Uh, but apparently the, the guy had been getting several death threats from the Taliban, you know, uh, and there was a one particular call and voicemail, I think it was, that, you know, dude was like cursing him out and saying, like, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill you and things like that. Um, and apparently Atal, uh, the, the helicopter pilot, had asked the government for like support and help. Apparently he was asking for like body bodyguards, like a bulletproof car, like something, you know, to help protect him. Uh, but the military turned him down and... Um, you know, the family of this guy is accusing the government of being like pretty weak on this particular matter. Um, but I find this really interesting because in total, seven pilots in Afghanistan, uh, including the two people uh, that we just talked about, have been assassinated off base in the last couple of months. Um, and obviously officials are... are, are pretty much saying that this is like a deliberate effort by the Taliban to destroy, you know, uh, military assets. And, and it's a very valuable military asset, uh, because the Taliban doesn't have an air force, right? So it takes a long time to train a pilot. Like you don't just get in a plane and fly around, (laughs) you know, like it takes months, years really to get good at what they do. And they're trained by the U S and NATO uh, and so they're offing them, they're killing them all. And, you know, it has a dual effect. One, it's like very hard to replace a, a, um, a trained pilot, uh, in, in the air force. So, yeah, so once one dies, it's like kind of tough to get another one, especially now that we're pulling out and we don't have all those training abilities, you know, readily available to them. But also it has a dual effect because it starts to scare the rest of them, right? So a lot of them are actually leaving the air force and like tr- leaving the country in some cases. Um, and you know, the Taliban are currently doing all these ground offensives and they don't have an air force and they might have some access to like anti-air weaponry, but you know, for the most part, you know, air superiority is going to dominate 
on this field. And if they have the ability to do close air support or transport troops or, you know, just bomb the shit out of people, you know, bomb the shit out of the Taliban, that kind of puts the Afghanistan army as weak as they are in a bit of a competitive edge. But now, you know, the Taliban are actually looking at, you know, disabling that or crippling that, that advantage. Apparently, according to a UN uh, report, 229 civilian deaths were caused by the Taliban um, in Afghanistan in the first three months of 2021, uh, and 41 civilian deaths were caused by Afghanistan Air Force over the same period. You know, um, and in that same period, excuse me, on Sunday, just this past Sunday, um, more than a thousand Afghanistan security uh, personnel actually fled Afghanistan to Tajikistan. Um, and apparently about 300 of them have come back, but I don't think all of them are coming back. So this like PSYOP, I guess it is, or like these series of assassinations are actually kind of working in Afghanistan's favor. Um, it's pretty fascinating shit. Well, um, it makes sense if you want to equalize the playing field, you'll, you'll take out the assassins because I would imagine there's going to be a much smaller budget to train these pilots and they're going to have a lot less training available. Um, and I hear those Blackhawk helicopters, they're difficult to train. They're very, um, Af- the Afghan government already doesn't really have the personnel to either fly those planes or maintain, not, excuse me, helicopters, um, and maintain them. And also I, I hear they have, tr- I've read they've had trouble, um, flying in a lot of the altitudes in Afghanistan. They don't like those Blackhawks don't really handle the, the, uh, it's like much the more difficult. Yeah. Altitudes like the old Russian pl- uh, helicopters, what they're used to, um, were better suited for that. Um, but Hey man, Lockheed Martin, um, owns, uh, what is it? Selesky, the, the company that makes that those helicopters. Yeah. So they'd be more yeah. than happy to sell them. And we actually just sold as a, as a, as a, uh, departing gift to the Afghan government. We gave them about like 37 or so helicopters comes out to like 450 million dollars no big but um small token yeah more of a gift to lockheed martin before the war is over like a little bit a little bit of a a, you know severance pay or something like that but um so what was it like 30 you said 30 something black i think it was 30 i think it was around 37 helicopters or so 37 or 47 for for 450 million dollars right yeah they were like 12 million a piece these helicopters (laughs) <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And and there's um, always of course going to be like the you know the you don't just get a helicopter and it's like okay cool great I have a helicopter. It's like all right, now how do you maintain the helicopter? How do you train on the helicopter? How do you fuel the helicopter? Right? There's like all these ancillary costs associated to them and I'm sure where you know Lockheed is more than willing to provide those services for a cost. Oh yeah. And helicopters is like been selling pushing helicopters has always been a big scandal in the military there's a lot of helicopter scandals throughout like the military industrial complex's history especially like in the vietnam era but also in the afghan era but um i guess it all makes it better that we are well we seem to be progressing ahead of schedule as far as the withdrawal and um the experts are saying that we should be out by august they were saying july previously but it looks like we're going to be out almost completely by August before the September 11th withdrawal date that we set. And for the life of me, I do not get why they decided to make September 11th the 
final day to be in Afghanistan. Like, why why would you give your political enemies the ammo? Yeah. Like, are you I serious? Mean, it's Twenty year, it's the twentieth anniversary. But like, like what PR blunder is that? You know, it's like the U.S. lost in two thousand and one. September 11, and we lost again in 2021. September 11, 20 years apart. Man, it, I I have zero clue why or who thought that that was a good idea. Like, just make it September 1st. Make it or make it August 30th or 31st. I can't remember if August has 30 or 31 days or any other day of the year. Um, but no, they went with a, a politically charged date. Um, but I, I don't understand how lizard people, I don't understand the lizard brain as well as the human brain. So I guess that is, uh, you know, something I, we maybe there's get. some significance there. Yeah. But, um, I guess a big sign is, uh, general Austin Miller, he stepped down, which is a pretty serious gesture that this is all real. You know, we began this, this, began this podcast, um, talking about the assassination attempt on, on general Miller. Man, that's almost two, three years ago at this point, or two and a half years ago at this point, when they, when the Taliban um, almost got him on uh, an inside attack, but they actually got you know, one of the best Afghan generals, General Razak. Um, but I mean, and two, th- the war was over long before two thousand eight. But I mean, that is a huge uh, symbol that they they can get that close to. Um, a general and assassinate him, which is just crazy. Um, another serious gesture is that we just left a Bagram Air Base. That's and people huge. are so jaded. That's so huge. Yeah, people are so jaded that nobody thought that was ever going to happen, but it did. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it turns out that the military could do a speedy withdrawal from Afghanistan after all. Like, wasn't this supposed to be a logistical nightmare? I always thought that that was bullshit. Yeah, because every single time you, you know, someone's like, well, we need to get out of Afghanistan. Yeah, we have to do it over time because it's just going to be a logistical nightmare. They withdrew from Bagram Air Base really quick. Like Granted. Like a couple of days. Yeah. They left a lot of shit behind. They destroyed a lot of stuff. Right. And probably pissed off a lot of local scrap sellers, but, you know, they were just pretty much just marched right out um so i guess I'm- I, I mean i do know that like operationally you do have to secure your route out right because when you're leaving like that when you're pulling out you have the you know there's a risk that you can get hit while you're leaving uh and you know that that is a danger but you know that that operational risk isn't necessarily you know a this is going to take us 10 years to get out <laughs> you know kind of thing the the thing that extends the the, the withdrawal is not, you know, some logistical issue. It's a military industrial complex issue where they want to milk it for as long as humanly possible. Yeah. Um, you know, these, I mean, Bagram Air Base has been there for what, like 50 years. But, um, you know, these institutions, 50 years as in this, it was a Soviet base first. But like these these um bases that are created these huge mega bases that are created there i mean they're like they're permanent fixtures it's hard to just uh you know delocate the infrastructure undo it like just all the jobs on the line 
but I guess uh, now air support will operate out of the out of the Gulf states like Qatar and uh, the UAE, and then you know, we have aircraft carriers as well in, in the Arabian Sea that could that could do that. Um, but you know there was actually some air. There was an air. We're we're recording on Thursday, the twenty second, I believe. So um, there was actually a airstrike today on the Taliban uh, from the U.S. You know, there's a peace treaty right now where you know we're not technically supposed to be fighting the Taliban, but I guess in the treaty it's for defensive measures and things like that. I don't know the exact you know legal. Uh, pretexts or legal justifications they have, but there was an airstrike today that I guess didn't. What, what were you saying? I was just going to say, well, even if, even if what we're doing, what we're doing is probably not legal either, and like we would care anyway. <laughs> you know, it, it's not like the Taliban. I think, the, the, I think the Taliban are going to be patient and be like, all right, well, I guess we're just going to have to. We'll, we'll just try to wait and see. You know, it seems like they are. They've made enough gestures to us that it seems real. So, my mate, it would be foolhardy to go to war again with the United States right now. Right when um, they're about to leave. <laughs> yeah, right yeah. when they're about to leave. So they'll probably they probably have some some wiggle room when it comes to uh, or it's some just, some tolerance right now to a little bit of a, some airstrikes. Right. I mean, it's been they've been tolerating it basically for two decades. I guess they can tolerate right. it for maybe another month for or so a couple more weeks yeah mm-hmm. a couple more weeks and, and yeah totally and and all they really got to do is just run out the clock basically take a knee run out the clock yeah but now there's 650 troops are going to be there remaining that's what's going to be left to protect the the embassy in Kabul which i'm sure that's enough to protect the the embassy 650 troops but um, probably that's yeah. that's not an occupying force. No, not even close. That it's not a force that could fight the Taliban, especially now since the Taliban is um, the strongest since before the invasion in two thousand one. And um, you know, I've been reading a lot of uh, long war journal, and I, I've been just watching these guys freak out over the past couple of weeks. So um, Kandahar city. The capital of, of Kandahar province, it's it's about to be put, put under siege, at least last time I've read, I read it, it. You know, things are changing on the ground so quickly that this may be completely irrelevant by the time this is released. Um, but Kandahar city is a, is a second biggest city in Afghanistan, and, you know, it's the traditional seat of power for the Pashtuns. And, um, you know, according to the Long War Journal, the Taliban now threatens 16 out of 34 provincial capitals, while 18 of the provinces in their entirety are under direct threat of falling under the Taliban. Now, what makes this real significant is since April, the Taliban have tripled the number of districts under their control from 73 to 221 in just three months. That's nuts. That's fast. So, Within the since Biden, and this is what the Hawks are saying right now, they're like, "Oh, mm. look what Biden did! He ruined everything." Since Biden announced that we were leaving, for sure, because you know there was it was kind of up in the air. You know, Trump said that we were leaving, and then Trump was Biden won the election, and then and Trump then left. Like, oh, what is Biden going to do? <laughs> yeah. And then right. once he said he was leaving, I, this you know this all 
started to really escalate. And now the Hawks are mm-hmm. saying, oh, we are about to win. But if only we just held on for another 20 years. We could have done it. We could have made it. We could have made Afghanistan a... It could have been like Saudi Arabia. Because that's what they were saying. You know, when they were saying these these fantasies... Well, not the fantasies after 2001. The fantasies before 2001. They were like, you know... Um, because we used to support the Taliban. Or we used to... I mean, not only in the war against the Soviets. Um, like during the Civil War, we... the the, administ- the Clinton administration used to, you know, be on the side of the the, the Pashtun plurality in the Civil War um, against the Northern Alliance, and you know they were, you know, a lot of the kind of crazy neoconservative types were like, oh, you know, like the Taliban can make a country like Saudi Arabia a great ally, and you know they'll be able to protect our interest, and oh, blah 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 blah, you know, these people are nuts, um, but. Um, what the Taliban is doing is that they're taking over rural districts and they're using those districts to, you know, recruit and resupply and then eventually, you know, push closer to their population centers. And many of the units the the U.S. military trained and supplied for years are just surrendering. And they're just handing over all of their hardware. Sometimes the Taliban may assassinate or they might execute i wouldn't say assassinate it's not the right word they may execute the the commander but then they'll say hey you guys want to fight run or you know join us and then you know they don't have to do these mass executions because you know i don't think the afghan security forces really have the will or the desire to die for what afghan like this kind of constructed nation that's really just a total invention of kind of Western fantasy imperial state building projects. No, they don't give, they don't care. Um, and, you know, the time frame that keeps being pushed out is six months. So six months until the Afghan government completely falls. Sounds familiar, six right? Months six months until is always, the bomb. what's, why is six months <laughs> always used? But I mean, six months sounds, it sounds like it could be real. Like I don't know that for this particular case. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm by no means an expert on anything, but especially not Afghanistan. Um, I mean, I have zero clue how fast this will, the Afghan government will collapse. It certainly seems that the Afghan government, as we know it, is going to collapse in the foreseeable future. Like not five years. Like that's what everyone thinks within the year this thing is going to collapse. It's going to collapse right. hard. And uh, there's no what doubt. Gamblers are, are betting on this. Like what, what are the odds? <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there, I'm sure there are. What are the odds? How fast the over the under three months until the really, I guess the bet would be until there's no, um, you know, government in Kabul. But then, you know, what would happen is that there would be some type of loophole in the gambling because some, some guy, would be like, oh, the the real government is in this hotel in Pakistan, <laughs> you know, or this real, <laughs> that's the real government, yeah. kind of like Hadi, yeah. and, who's the president of Yemen, but he's just mm-hmm. like some guy living in a hotel room in Riyadh, but he's the government right. of Yemen, <laughs> and, right? But no, he's mm-hmm. not actually the, the government. government incarnate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but there's no uh, no and and i i I think most people are are, um positing that the government will fall but it won't be held by like just the taliban i don't think that's going to be a a thing either i think it'll it'll fracture into into multiple multiple regions like it probably should have been to begin with hopefully i mean that sounds like the most peaceful way for it to happen it you know becomes fragmented out and there not be one group dominating the other group uh, because that just sounds like a recipe for disaster but i i mean i I mean you know you got to remember that these the taliban do a much better job at at fighting in their country because that's their turf but they're gonna they're gonna have the same you know uh the same issues as any other occupying force has had in Afghanistan for the past forever. Um, you know, it's it's still very rugged, very mountainous. It's still underdeveloped in the sense that, like, there's not a shit ton of infrastructure that connects everything to be able to move troops around very easily. And, you know, the, the Taliban in particular uh, aren't trained in in particularly modern warfare. So they're they're limited to you know, ground and guerrilla warfare, right? And that can only get you so far. So keeping control like of of a of a country that size and that, you know, remote uh would be very difficult. Well, for one. The the north, you know, I I'm I'm talking about they're going to be able to have almost complete control in the south and the east and the Pashtun dominant areas. In the northern areas, the Tajik areas, I don't, you know, they're. I don't think they'll. They might get slayed if they go to an urban center there and try to impose their will. But I, I what I'm saying that is probably best if there was not any ethnic group dominating the other ethnic group because that never ends up seeming to work out really well. Like, ho- hopefully, there's not a brutal and bloody war. When the U.S. goes, which is certainly a, a huge possibility. I mean, it's been a very violent place in the past for the past four decades. Um, it, it may be awful for the people who live in Afghanistan, and it really does feel like the fall of Saigon moment. You know, when you have American collaborators hanging on to, to helicopters to escape. Um, you know, a lot of these interpreters are going to be killed. You know, it's a, and it's actually surprisingly very difficult for these people to get visas to the U.S. I remember one of the first, when I had a, the first Kindle I got, a book called The Interpreters was preloaded onto the Kindle and it was all, it was just about Afghan um, interpreters and how hard it was for them to get visas. Really? That was the book that they preloaded? Did they, yeah. did they just know you? <laughs> no, this wow. was, this was Many, many years ago, this was probably almost 10 years ago, whenever the Kindle first came out, I got one, and that was the book that was preloaded onto it. It was strange, but um, unless I subconsciously bought it or something in my sleep, (laughs) by accident. You from the future went back in time and bought it for you on your Kindle. Yeah. (laughs) Preloaded it so that you can read it and get into in geopolitics uh, and start pro history. See, we we, we uncovered it. That's that's what happened, man. well, I read this book, you know, very way b- before there was any uh, idea of bro history and podcasting about this stuff. But uh, it was yeah, man, man, yeah, it was, was all, the spark. Yeah, that it was, was a book the spark. about yeah, maybe that was the spark. It was just all about how how um, hard it was for interpreters to get visas and how 
much danger they were in. Um, right. Which just sucks. You know, I, you know, if they're putting yep. their life on the line, I think that they should be able to get into the country. You can't just say, all right, right they're doing well, us a service. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck to you and your family. Thanks for your service. <laughs> Figure it out. Here's, yeah. here's $2,000 and bye. We'll give you the same amount of money that we gave for, um, for bailouts to our citizens. $1,400 or sixteen, whatever. I forget how much they gave. Um, it was like 1200 and it was 1400 and there was another 600 for a plus. Well, of, it it changed many lives for the better. It, it, it really helped our, our population out. So um, the Taliban are bastards. You know, they really don't have much of an issue with killing civilians. And, um, you know, the reason why people are saying we need to say, or <clears throat> excuse me, why they're saying we need to stay is um, you can't leave these people out to dry. You know, what's going to happen to women's rights? How many times have you heard that? That's like been the justification for the entire war, right? Because, you know, they don't treat the, the Taliban don't treat their women good. They oppress them. Didn't well, some of our stimulus money go to like women's rights in Afghanistan or something like no, that? No, they went to women's they went to women's studies in Pakistan. Oh, okay. Close. So just across the border. That's where mm-hmm. we we're trying to promote women's studies. You know, you can make a really weird argument that well, actually it might be a true argument. Um, that the Taliban was a religious movement formed to stop a lot of the rape that was going on um, against Afghan women and children during the Civil War after after the Soviets withdrew. Because after the Civil War, after the Soviets withdrew, the Civil War in Afghanistan was just, it was just total anarchy, chaos, blood, and craziness. You know, what happened with the Soviet Union was way worse than what happened with the United States as far as the war and, um, you know, hopefully the aftermath, you know, the war doesn't, the Civil War that precedes the actual occupation doesn't get as bad as a civil war that preceded the soviet occupation you know the soviet occupation they killed about a million afghans they lost about what thirty thousand soldiers or so the u.s i don't think i think they may have killed hundreds of thousands or at, at the very least i'm being very very conservative if i say tens of thousands but it's probably in the hundreds of thousands of civilians um but we've only had 2,500 around 2,500 U.S. troops, and um, I think with coalition troops, there was like 3,500 who died. And I guess contractors, you know, they're in that number. It's not nearly the casualty rate wasn't nearly as high as the Soviet Union, or the cost wasn't. So, um, but the Civil War that the blood preceded, cost wasn't as high. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. the, that preceded was just anarchy and cr- craziness and horror and mass just just very vile, ugly, bloody chaos. And that's mm-hmm. why the Taliban rose to prominence because they were establishing order. And one of the things they did, a big problem there was child rape. Child rape was a really big problem in Afghanistan after the war. And the Taliban would go in and they'd find these rapists and they'd hang them. They'd hang them on construction platforms. You just mm-hmm. type in Google, you'll, you'll find those images they would just take, you know, they would hang these child rapists. You know, they were like the QAnon crew. Um, the Afghan version of it. <laughs> the Afghan ATQ. <laughs> um, T. <laughs> but that's why they were popular, you know, because yeah. maybe 
you don't like conservative, super conservative societies, but most likely you're going to dislike, you know, child rapists, rapists more. more. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And also, you know, you can you can make this argument as well that the Taliban are kind of like a bunch of Alyssa Milano's compa- compared to the customs of the old Pashtun villages. Like, you know, these villages that, you know, that, that are so isolated, they still basically live in like a 10th century society. I mean, they're coming to these villages and like, come on, man, you can't do that anymore. We're in the 18th century now. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you can't stone people for just that. Come on. What are we doing? We have the printing press now. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a kind of a weird dynamic to think about. But I mean, we're talking about a society, and I'm not trying to shit on Afghan society. I'm just trying to explain the reality is that there's parts of it that are very isolated from the rest of the world that have no idea what the new world is or what the new world order is or what happened after World War II or anything about um 9/11 or what an arab is or you know that the way that is what an yeah, arab is <laughs> yeah what an arab is what an american is like they just the world mm-hmm. is you know their village from you know mountain from the north from this mountain, mountain from the, the south or exactly. whatever you know there was a mm-hmm. oh, man it's on the, who the name is forgetting me right now and i feel terrible but the guy, a guy, um, he was a British intelligence. I heard him on the Scott Horton show, and he was telling he was uh, telling him the way that I had to explain why we were there to some of these some of these villagers was that there was a um, there was an Arab who flew a plane at a building in a village in a village named New York. A village named New York. <laughs> a village. So these people had the West Village. <laughs> no idea what New York City was, or that New York City sat on top of you know was New York City is the capital of the world. You know NATO is headquartered in in New York City. They have no idea about this new world order that was created after World War II. They probably didn't really know what World War II was. That's how isolated and in the boondocks some of these societies are. And they're like, well, what the hell does this have to do with us? Like, what does this have to do with it? Like, what, why are you here? Um, so I'm just trying to far- herd my goats here. Yeah, I'm just like, what? <laughs> what? But, but um, I guess to go back, I don't think women's rights will be a top platform for the Taliban. Um, Not this time around, probably. But, unless ra- unless mass yeah. rape happens again, maybe. Yeah. Well, th- despite you know the potential horror show that may happen, that may be likely to happen in terms of a civil war, and you know despite how tragic that will be, this decline with all these districts and the decline in this government is just proof that we needed to get at, get get out of there. You know, twenty years has proved that we can't even prop up the government, let alone, you know, create a stable monopoly on, on a violence in the country. You know, we've spent $2 trillion on this project, and 
we fail to even really account on how the money was used half the time, we'll be like, hey, we just spent $100 million on a STEM center for young girls so they can learn math and science. And then that, that STEM center ends up, or that school just ends up being like a tent with a desk in it. Oh yeah, it was $100 million. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at these schools that we made. It's it's just all just horseshit. Um, and yeah, like the 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 deaths of the, the massive amount of death that has taken place. Um, and I think it was really just dumb to think that we could pull this war off. And you know, I'm gonna parrot Scott Horton because you know I read his books on Afghanistan. Well, his book on Afghanistan, and um, you know, listened to a lot of the experts on his show, and kind of like my main hub of uh, research or material for this is that. Um, his book is a fool's errand. It's a it's a great book. Um, he always says, you know, Afghanistan is the size of Texas. It's landlocked north of Pakistan, and it has deserts like California and mountains like Colorado. And then, you know, what, what he's saying is that it's it's just very rugged, untamable land, and you may be able to occupy Kabul for two decades. But it's impossible to pacify the countryside, which is the majority of the country. And in addition to the terrain, you know, we're, we're talking about that. And just to give some background, you're dealing with all these different tribal cultures and ethnicities. You know, you have, um, you have the Pashtuns in the east and the south, who are the largest ethnic group. The major tribes in the north, you have the Uzbeks, Tajiks, and Hazaris. The Hazaris are Shiites who are also a different religious sect. So, you know, not only are they a different ethnicity, but they're a different religion. And um, Afghanistan, you know, they're basically just separate nations in different, par- in different parts of the country. So what the U.S. did was they used, they used different ethnic groups to dominate and occupy 
the plurality, Pashtuns in the South, and they tried to impose a minority coalition on the largest ethnic group. So this may have worked in Iraq because, you know, Iraq's situation was we removed the Sunni secular secular dictator and replaced them with the Shia, more religious chauvinist types who are friendly with Iran. So it kind of backfired on us. But at the very least, that government still stands to this day because (laughs) it's still, I mean, as corrupt as it is, it still stands to this day, that government. It was able to withstand the Sunni insurgency that happened after the war, after the U.S. invasion in 2003. And the reason why they were able to withstand is because they gave the power to the majority group, the, the Shias of Iraq, the, the majority group. And, you know, the Shia of Iraq were able to get their people in power and government was because they voted for them. You know, they voted for them, you know, based off, you know, their sectarian preference. Um, you know, I don't think, there were, the, you know, the platform wasn't like, well, you know, what do you think of uh, capital gains tax or... You know, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. What do you think should be the? Uh, well, we'll talk about different tax brackets or no? The, 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 yeah. the what they're voting for is oh, you're going to give preference to my sex, my religion. Okay, I vote for you. That's basically how right. voting for a um, sectarian leadership or a ethnic leadership works. So you're like, oh, you're just you're going to vote for. The either help my group? ethnic cool. or religious favoritism, you're helping our group. And what that does is you may get power doing that, but it also forces the other groups to band together. And you get this cycle that's very vicious in parts of the world, especially in both of the countries that we decided to invade in the early 21st century for reasons that no one really is able to explain still or at least anyone from government is able to explain. And, you know, to go back, um, we never had to fight this war. You know, even after September 11th, this is where you can argue, like, well, we had to go and get bin Laden. After September 11th, the U.S. didn't have to invade Afghanistan. You know, I was saying this before, the Clinton administration supported the Taliban along with Saudi Arabia and Pakistan back in 1996. They wanted to see a Taliban victory over the Northern Alliance, so mainly because of pipeline security. But um, after 9-11, the Taliban offered to give bin Laden up to any Muslim nation if they, you know, if we provided proof that he was involved in uh, the September 11th terrorist attacks. They said that they would give them up to any Muslim country and, you know, we had a lot of, we have Muslim allies. I mean, how many countries could we have transported them to? Who, who could have picked them up? Like, Syria was over there. Um, I mean, we were allies with Syria at that time. And, you know, what Assad was doing for us back then was just torturing people. That was like our torture guy. Right. That, that was our... Our, yeah. our torture, our friend who would torture people for us. So they would have extradited them back to us. You know, there's... Um, Malaysia, 
There's Pakistan. They said they would turn him over to the pack to the Pakistanis. They would have extradited him. Um, but I think after we bombed them, they said that they would give him to any country besides the United States or Israel. Um, and then you know we, you know we, they would just be extradited back to the United States. So we decided to just say, okay, well, yeah, we're not negotiating with you. We're not mm-hmm. negotiating. We don't with, negotiate with terrorists. We don't negotiate with terrorists or Muslims. That was it. It wasn't or terrorists. Like, we don't negotiate. Harbor with. and give, harbor and give, uh, um, what was it? People who harbor. Um, harbor terrorists. We don't negotiate with people with goofy, with funny hats. That was basically their motto. And um, I think that the Bush administration never wanted to get bin Laden because that would end the war. Do you remember, if we were kids back then, it was a long time ago, but remember when the news was telling us that we were hot on bin Laden's trail, but then suddenly we were told the trail went cold? So right, Delta like he Force disappeared in the mountains somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Delta Force had him pinned down in Tora Bora, which is true. Delta Force had Bin Laden pinned down at the Battle of Tora Bora, but the Bush administration refused to commit the available ground forces to seal off the border of Pakistan and prevent him from escaping. And there was like, find him. <laughs> yeah, and we had a lot of resources to to seal that border up. There were um, there were army rangers in the Bagram Air Base, like a hundred miles away. And James Mattis had even said he had four thousand Marines. He was in Kandahar, and he claims that he had permission. I mean, he requ- he didn't have permission. He requested permission to join the fight, but he was denied. So, what I think is that. The Bush administration had the chance to get him, and they said, no, if we get him now, we won't be able to link him with with Saddam Hussein. We won't be able to link him with Saddam and get our, and get our war with Iraq. Like, what are we doing this for? We're doing this to have perpetual war and enrich our buddies. We're not doing this to, to make the world safe. Like, the hunt, it's over. The scheme is over. The boondoggle is over. We can't get him now. We need this guy to get support. We need this guy to have support for our wars that we want to wage. And that's, and that is, uh, I think that really is the story of why, of what happened. It's not like, and even, you know, if he went into the, um, to the border of Pakistan, and this is what Scott Horton said, and I was, and I was dying. He's like, even if they went to the border of Pakistan, it's not like they went in the hyperspace and you couldn't catch them, like in Star Wars, <laughs> yeah. when like the yeah, millenni- you know the big imperial yeah, cruiser is about speed. to get, yeah, they're about to get the Millennium mm-hmm. Falcon and it's like, oh, we got it, and then whoop, and they escape just before <laughs> it's gone. Darth Vader is able <laughs> yeah. to blast their ship into the asteroid. It's not like they have mm-hmm. that technology where they're going into hyperspace. They're um Shit, just maybe they do <laughs> walking the border, <laughs> walking on the going on the border. Yeah, maybe they have that UFO technology. Yeah, right. <laughs> They've got that good shit. Like why anti gravity? Don't we have a good relationship with Pakistan, or at least 
you know, on the surface, don't we have a good Decent relationship one. with Pakistan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the truth is that, um, you know, we, we really just wanted to keep that war going. What do you think? I think what's funny about what you said is, is you know, if you, if you listen to it out of context, it kind of sounds a little bit like, oh, like a bit of a conspiracy theory. Like, why would the U.S. like intentionally, why would the Bush administration intentionally not go and catch the guy? But it's like all of the evidence that we see here, you know, that we've been getting kind of slowly over the last 20 years is just confirming and reconfirming and reconfirming everything that you're saying. You know, this isn't like some, some crackpot theory is just pretty obvious at this point you know and yeah it's it's just a a way to enrich the military industrial complex they're they're the real winners in this whole war you know wasn't the afghanistanis wasn't it wasn't the it wasn't us certainly wasn't us because i think uh the press secretary biden's press secretary recently said something like something really stupid the way that they're describing this is the war in afghanistan has not been won militarily (laughs) <laughs> but it's Which in is one just in our a, hearts. Right. The real war was the friends we made For, along the way. <laughs> everyone who participated was the real. The real war was won by everyone who learned this valuable lesson. Right. Well, we learned you a know, valuable. We, we, no. What a way to pitch it. Hey, Biden actually is in a position to... Well, he's actually in a pretty good position to do this, and that's why he is doing it. Uh, right. Because he, first because of all, now it's started abundantly more. clear. And, and second right. of all, he was kind of like a reasonable voice when it came to a lot of these issues in the Middle East to to mm-hmm. Obama. So mm-hmm. even if you're even if you can be like, well, Barack Obama escalated the war in Afghanistan, which he very well did. Obama yeah. did escalate the war Definitely in did. Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Biden was one of the only people who was like, this isn't really a good idea. You shouldn't listen to the generals. So I think that (laughs) Biden um, has a little bit more, um, I guess, experience to deal with with generals and say, no, like, I just want to, I'm not doing this. He's, I mean, just think about Biden. He's been burnt so bad by experience when it comes to foreign policy as far as his, you know, um, you know, getting the the being the whip to get Democrats to vote for the Iraq War, and you know that eventually leading to ultimately the death of his son, which is really sad. I mean, it was a, his son got cancer because he was stationed near in a burn pit. Um, so I think that kind of regret looms over him and makes a lot of his foreign policy decisions more sober. Um, so he's able to do that, and honestly, it's just. The public agrees. It's not an unpopular opinion with the public. It may be an unpopular opinion with with generals in the Pentagon or weirdos. Like, only a weirdo at this point was like, well, we need to stay in there for our integrity along the world. And, you know, we're going to lose credibility around the world if we continue to stay in Afghanistan. You know what they're saying now, those, those weirdos? You know those weirdos? They're, they're, they, I was watching Fox News recently, and they had this guy on it. I don't know who the fuck this guy was. I don't know what his credentials were, but he was basically saying, like, 
yeah, we should totally get out of Afghanistan. Nobody thinks we should be in Afghanistan. But what we should be doing is taking all those troops and redeploying them to other areas all over the world so that we can assert dominance everywhere else. And the way that he was saying it was just such a joke because it was like he was trying to, on the one hand, say, like, war bad. And then on the other hand, say, let's make war everywhere else. <laughs> like, Come and it was on. just such a face, such a face poem. Like, dude, what are you even saying? Like, he, he's acting like he's woke for being on the, ant, like, let's pull out of Afghanistan thing. And in the same sentence is proposing that we, like, then turn around and maybe put them in, like, Nigeria. Or, like, put them in, in like, uh, I don't know, fucking any, literally anywhere else. You pick a, pick a fucking country. You know? He's like... Um, it's like, come on, Afghanistan is just getting boring. Like, people are tired of this war. Not because of yeah. the horrors of it, because of it's immoral, but because it's just not interesting anymore. It's not sexy. There's nothing cool about it. It's not trending on Twitter anymore. <laughs> like, come on, I think of Patrick Tillman when I think of Afghanistan, and that just makes me sad because he played football. Come on, we gotta right. do some other war theater. We gotta like, do let's go back to Jungle Fresh. Theme. Come on, Jungle Theme with fun. Right. Let's go to Ice Theme, guys. Let's do an Ice Theme war. Imagine if <laughs> that's probably how they think. Like, we need to find a nice war, Tundra, to declare our next war. That will be a way to do it. You know, we'll find some Eskimos, too, uh, that hate each other. You know, we'll try to create a state. <laughs> and then, you know, it'll be great. Come on, you know. Maybe there'll be more opportunity as, like, you know, polar hey, man, ice we've caps been, We've been escalating. Dude, we've been escalating on the on the polar ice caps lately, so this story might actually play out. You know, um, there's because the uh, northern ice in the Arctic Circle, the ice caps are melting, which revealing all of this natural resources that's been locked under the ice for God knows how long, thanks global warming. And now everybody's vying for a position to try and like, you know, capitalize on it because they're finding shit like natural gases and like gold and <laughs> and like random shit like that. So they. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible that we do find some, like, Inuit villages, <laughs> you know. Do you want to freak out some uh, some liberals? Here's what you got to tell them, mm. and, they'll, and they'll, this will freak them out. And I bet this is, if you tell them this or if they hear this, then they'll think about it. The Lay main beneficiary, the, the country that's going to benefit the most out of, uh, you know, the melting of, of uh, ice caps and things like that, of uh, an increase in sea levels, would be Russia by far because Russia, all of their capitals besides St. Petersburg are inland. So Moscow is not in, you know, on the coast. Um, They're not getting flooded. (laughs) Most of their major cities are not on the coast besides St. Petersburg. And they have so much, they have a lot of natural resources up in Siberia that are covered with permafrost. So they'll have access to all this mineral wealth. It will. It would be. It would be good for them. As like a in a, like a geopolitical national way. Yeah, it would be good for them. So if you really want to sell people on climate change, maybe you go like, "Well, you're benefiting Putin. You're benefiting Putin." Just, just, just funny. Just that's, funny. That's thought. a mind blower right there. That's a mind blower. Oh yeah, but I mean, shit. I mean, you don't have to be on the coast for it to like destroy shit. Not just in the last two weeks, there was like that giant, you know, uh, river flooding in Germany that's killed mad people. So, you know, global warming will hit you wherever you are. 
just in well, different ways. Well, here, so I want to go back to one more point on Afghanistan, and then let's move to our next topic, okay? Um, which I think will be Cuba. But so a bunch of people. Cuba. Another reason why people say that we stay. This is like the the two reasons that are like, well, we can't go. Are you know women's rights? We can't let them out, leave the people out to dry. And then the third one being right. like, well, who's going to fill the vacuum? Who's going to fill the <laughs> yeah. vacuum? And everyone knows ISIS two point oh. They're not talking about ISIS really. ISIS doesn't really have that strong of a foothold there. ISIS. No, gets I know, but they try to the make Taliban. it seem like I, that that an, an ISIS will develop in in the absence of American military. Well, I mean, I don't. ISIS is like those groups in Iraq and Syria are way different than groups in like they're completely different customs. Everyone groups Again, Muslims together. ISIS is. I'm, I'm just. I'm just saying. Not ISIS and ISIS, like a militant group. Like a yeah, I know. I know you mean. That's like cut people's heads off. The ISIS yeah. in the the ISIS in Afghanistan are just like former uh, Mujahideen and pa- like Pakistani right. refugees. But um, I don't think that would be an issue. What they're talking about more so is uh, like what what do they care for fuck if people get their heads lopped off? They don't care about that. What they are always insinuating is that China is china china is going to fill that vacuum so they'll be like well china's gonna be the great power to invade afghanistan next you know they have they have yeah god help us if you really want to take down china if as a great power then let them be number five on the list of of uh, empires that decided to meddle in that part of the world like you know you can go back to every single great empire on earth Basically, I mean, not everyone that's being a little facetious, but back to but Alexander man, the Great. <laughs> yeah, <Right>. Alexander <laughs> the Great and the British Empire and the Soviet Union and America. And, you know, there's a, you know, that meme, like graveyard empires. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right. China. Go in there. China. Go to Afghanistan. <laughs> right. Try to pacify the countryside. Yeah, if only they would be so dumb to do that. Um, But they do have, like, at least on a copper mine there which they haven't really been able to exploit. But China actually is a, a pretty big, well, was a beneficiary of of US of the U.S. presence there because we, we provided them with the security blanket that enabled them to pursue their Belt and Road Initiative across Pakistan and Central Asia. And um, China has a lot of investments in both Pakistan and China, in, uh, uh, Tajikistan, which share borders and then, you know, their ethnic tribal links with Afghanistan. Um, right. So the implication is that Afghanistan's, you know, relative calm is to the benefit of, of China's, you know, business ventures. Yeah, they are. And then another thing, if you want to get real deep or make the case, is that a lot of the Uyghur Muslims that flee from China, they... They, they, a lot of them go to Afghanistan. And, right. You know, Tajikistan a, and, and Kazakhstan and Afghanistan are like the popular destinations for them. And allegedly there's Uyghur militants there. So that I didn't know. That's interesting. I'm going to have to Google that. I later. mean, there's, there's Uyghur militants, and you can imagine there's probably militant groups out of any refugee group in foreign, in foreign countries. Um, but, 
you know, who knows? You know, maybe as U.S. as U.S. power wanes, the CIA will try try to create, you know, separatist movements among um, a Uyghur insurgency. Yeah, against, <laughs> and then also separatist movements, and you know, across the different uh, other ethnic groups like the Uzbeks and the Tajiks, and you know, Iran will be there to um, arm and finance the Hazara minority, which they do already, and you know. Pakistan will continue to quietly support the Taliban, um, but I don't. I don't really think China wants to get too involved in any mil or. I I don't think that's something to worry about or to take at face value. Be like, oh, China wants to get China super involved. Um, all right, you want to keep on talking about Afghanistan, or do you want to move on to? Now, let's, Cuba. Let's I think we're beating a dead horse now. Sure. Cuba. 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 Um, yeah, man. I was in Puerto Rico, and um, I got the news uh, that Cuba is apparently on fire. Well, not literally on fire, but you know, there's a bunch of protests happening right now against the Cuban government and, of course, the ruling Communist Party of Cuba. And uh, that started on the 11th. Um, but it's been going, it's been ongoing. Um, and I think the, the, the going story right now is that it was triggered by a shortage of food and medicine, um, in the government's response to, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, which surprisingly is actually legitimately resurging in, in Cuba pretty hard right now. Um, lots of people are dying They're They're having like record, hospitalizations again and you know record death counts again so they're they seem to be going in the opposite direction right now which is very very sad very terrible um but what was interesting about these you know particular riots um is uh that they are the biggest uh anti-government demonstrations since uh what was known as the maleconazo which happened in 1994 uh that was a series of anti-government uh, demonstrations and riots uh, that happened as a result of the Soviet Union collapsing. Um, basically, when that happened, that was like an opportunity for the uh, the dissidents uh, for communism to try and, you know, pull away from it. But obviously, communism won in that particular um, fight. And, you know, so I started doing a little bit of research on that because I was, I was interested in you know, the kind of the history of this rioting and, and, and communism and socialism, generally speaking, in Cuba, uh, just to like kind of get little bearings, a little background. So I started reading into the, um, you know, those riots in 94 to kind of see how they compared to today. And, you know, I learned a lot. So a couple of things, um, you know, in 94, there were more than 30,000 people who actually fled the island of Cuba on boats and shit to the, the communist States. always trying to tell you what to do. <laughs> yeah um yeah i mean that 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 was the that was the product of the times you know so it's, you know, that thirty thousand people is a lot of people to like just jump on a little raft and you know i mean the closest that cuba and um and florida is like key west specifically is 90 miles but that's like it's like one little tiny part of it you know um you know if it, most people don't live in that one little tiny part of cuba and then decide to flee from there uh they're fleeing from anywhere on the island so you know in in many cases they're going up to 300 miles on a little raft you know trying to find their way over to um, florida and that's that's a very dangerous perilous journey and so i started reading about that 
because I found that interesting because it's kind of reminiscent, you know, of at least the rhetoric that's coming out in the media today is reminiscent of like this mass migration scare from, you know, our southern border in Mexico, right? But with like a different flavor, like a different twist. Um, so in 94, uh, around that time, uh, then President Bill Clinton actually enacted what was called the wet foot, dry foot policy. And what this policy was about was it basically gave any refugee of Cuba that like successfully made the journey from Florida uh, to Florida, I should say. Um, it basically gave them the ability to stay in the United States. It's like, if you, if you, if you make it great, you know, you can stay. And then later uh, it was expanded to, you know, uh, allow for them to get a path to like an expedited legal permanent residency. Right. Um, of course, this was a very special deal that we're working out for, for, you know, Cuban refugees. Uh, you know, we don't necessarily extend that same, um, welcome open arms policy to people who say cross the Rio Grande, you know, uh, fleeing from, you know, gang violence in Honduras. Um, I digress though. But the other side of that, that, that was the dry foot part of the wet foot, dry foot policies. Like if you, if you, you know, make it to dry land, you're good. But the wet foot part of it was that anyone who didn't make it to dry land gets sent back to Cuba. So if they scoop you up in the ocean, they catch you on the way here, they'll bring you to the, to Florida, they'll hold you for a couple of days, and then they will either extradite you back to Cuba directly or they'll send you to a third country. And often it was like Mexico or something. Unless like you can play baseball, then they'll take you. <laughs> Unless you can play baseball. Unless you can throw a 100-mile-per-hour fastball, then you, then you can stay. Then you can stay. There's a test. And if you pass, then you, you can stay. Um, and this story, like that, that kind of, you know, learning about that policy made me think of, uh, that one really big story from the mid nineties. Do you remember that little Cuban boy that was like famous? Uh, Elian Gonzalez. Yep. That's him. Right. So Elian Gonzalez, short story about this kid for anyone who's either too young to remember that story or just haven't, you know, been hip to it, but it was super, super famous. Uh, the short story is that. His mom and her new boyfriend, Cuban people, right? They were in Cuba. Uh, they basically took him in the night and, you know, apparently they gave him like sleeping pills so he'd fall asleep or something like that. I don't know how that was relevant to the story, but I remember reading about it. And they get on this little fishing boat that was bound for Florida. And on the way, shit went down. Uh, so the, the boat capsized. And his mom was able to you know, help him onto this little raft, this like little life raft that was, you know, attached to the back of the boat. Uh, she didn't make it. Unfortunately, she died. She was lost at sea. Uh, but he did make it. And he was basically floating around for God knows how long in the ocean by himself um, until a fisherman found him. Uh, and the fisherman was uh, obviously a U.S. fisherman and brought him back to Florida. And there was this whole, you know, big news story about it because obviously that's a crazy story, right? You know, poor little kid you know, get stuck in this situation. And, you know, in the, in the U S they were painting it as like a, Oh, you know, communism is so bad that, you know, this mom had to like flee from communism and take her kid and she lost her life. But, you know, thank God he survived, you know, and now he's here in the United States and, you know, go freedom, right. That's, <laughs> that was like the, the media story. Right. But also part of this is that the kid's father is alive and existed in Cuba. And when uh, they figured it out, like, you know, kid's father wanted him to come home, right? And 
you know, the, the family that Elian, Elian Gonzalez had some family in, in Florida, and that's who he was staying with, um, you know, in the interim. Uh, but the father wanted him to come back, and, and that family didn't want to give him up. And there was this big, like, national debate about, you know, should we, you know, let him go back to his dad, or should he be an American citizen and stay here, you know, because communism bad, right? Um, ultimately, the father won the legal battle about it, right? And, you know, he did get custody and then there's this famous you know situation where like the federal agents go and raid the house where he was staying because they had like barricaded it in like they were like trying to keep him there <laughs> uh and like there's this picture super famous if you, if you haven't seen it like google elian gonzalez raid uh and it's just this like federal agent pointing like an assault re- weapon at the guy holding elian gonzalez in a closet. i remember it's that so nuts i remember that so nuts. i was i was young I, it's like one of my first memories. I, it's <laughs> like one of my Gonzalez. first news stories I remember as a child. Right. Is that. Right. And I, was, I mean, he's roughly our age. You know, he's grown up now. Um, it was nuts. That was a nuts story. Um, now, as crazy a story as that is, it, I think it highlights an issue that's rising today in Cuba. And that's uh, in particular mass migration or at least the threat of mass migration. Because, you know, from, from what I've read and heard right now, and, and frankly seen with my own eyes at this point, you know, because th- there's so much footage coming out of this situation, is that, that there's this new generation of Cubans that are, like, done with communism. They're done with the government. They're, they're like, they've had enough at this point. And now that they have the social media and, you know, uh, smartphones and shit and technology, that they have so much better means to organize and they have so many better ways of getting their story out right we're just seeing these videos coming out and it's and it's pretty nuts you know and i mean you know there there is some criticism about you know our media today saying that it's all about the pandemic which you know that that's not the whole story the the pandemic definitely sparked this round of conflict i think if, if you're ignoring that you're just not seeing you're not seeing the you know some of the start the catalysts here you know, because there was a lot of government lockdowns as the entire world went to in lockdown. And there was a super shitty response to vaccinations um, where the government actually denied importing vaccines and decided to make them themselves, which took forever, obviously. And then obviously they don't have the capacity to, to produce enough of them to give to everyone. Go figure. It's a communist country. Um, and then there's just like an overall shortage of medical supplies, which obviously pissed people off, but also it costs a lot of people their lives. So you can't deny that, that COVID-19 definitely was a contributor to this, but you know, a lot of this was a long time coming, you know, this, this has been, you know, Cuba kind of sucks right now. And I mean that in a loving way, you know, not, not because I you know, want to shit on Cuban people or anything like that. It's just, the, the country's in shambles. They're in, they're in a shortage of everything except for shortages, which is a pun that I am going to own. <laughs> um, I was actually watching this video, a Turning Point USA video, which, you know, oh, God. crazy, crazy, right? But I watched it for the lulls because I was just doing a bunch of research, and I'm like, let me just see what these guys have to say. And even though I fervently disagree with that organization <laughs> on pretty much everything, this particular video was actually kind of informative. Um, I was pretty surprised at it. And it was like a group of bros, you know, it starts off like, oh, you know, 
the liberal media wants you to think that, uh, you know, Cuba's this beautiful paradise. And we Googled it, and all you can find is these beautiful pictures. So we decided to go to Cuba to see what it was actually like, right? So if you can ignore those parts, actually with the, the footage and the film that they actually did get a chance to, to, um, to take was pretty interesting. Um, and I'm sure that the video is heavily edited and super biased to prove that th- their point that socialism sucks. Um, but from what you can see and, you know, the video that they do provide, it's it's legitimately pretty bad. You know, like the, there's this one scene in that video where they're, you know, they go on, um, they rent a car or whatever, and there's so many gas shortages and they get in line for a gas line and... They're like, okay, we're going to show you what this gas, how long this gas line is. And they pull over to the side and they just drive down this thing. It's like a half mile long gas line, you know? And there's like people pushing their cars because their cars ran out of gas, waiting on the gas line. Um, and then there's these like like footage of like grocery stores as an example. Like they're, they're at this one grocery store. They finally open up the gates of the grocery store. And it's like a Black Friday mob of people that are ru- rushing into this grocery store and oh the stores were stocked full of nonsense like they had this aisle that was just one brand of mango marmalade cans <laughs> it was just like the most useless shit in this <laughs> um in this uh uh supermarket so so yeah you know i guess what, what i'm trying to get at here is that cubans are probably pretty pissed at their you know con- at their living conditions and at you know the the way that their government's being run and and yes, COVID-19 probably didn't help at all. And, and now they've decided to start protesting about it and rioting, frankly. Um, can't blame them for what they're doing, but, you know, that's, that's, that's how it turns out, you know, when people get frustrated. Um, but we've seen this before, right? So new generation taking to the streets to protest in a pressure regime, you know, um, wink, wink, Hong Kong, you know. Um, so, of course, the Cuban government right now is cracking down on this, and, and in many cases, they're injuring protesters. I actually don't recall if anyone has died or not. Um, I'm certain somebody has to have, unfortunately. And, you know, but, but the point is that all of it's being streamed on the Internet, right? So you know, think like... I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches... April 9th. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. 
New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less. So you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. As an example, uh, uh, police violence against uh, uh, black and brown people has always been a thing, but it wasn't until we start seeing all these videos all the fucking time of it happening, like George Floyd, that that causes a giant, you know, massive protest, right? So same thing in Cuba, right? So it's always been a thing that Cuba kind of sucks for all these reasons that I described before, but now, you know, that we start seeing the evidence of it and they protest against it and you see the government response to it, this causes a giant upheaval in 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 violence and in and in rioting, and um, of course, there's the U.S. implications that I mentioned before, right? Because now the Biden administration is kind of under a bit of pressure to do something about it in response. But it's kind of a no-win situation, really. Um, on one hand, it looks like we're placing these new sanctions and embargoes on Cuba. This actually just today. They um, came out it was a couple hours ago uh, that they're going to be putting um, some new sanctions and embargoes in place on you know for Cuba in response to the way that the government had been handling those protests. And I'm not privy on the details yet because it literally just came out, but I read something about how they will hold individuals who violate human rights on the island of Cuba accountable, whatever the hell that means. Um, so you know, it looks like they're doing something, I guess. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, the government of Cuba has used mass migration as a weapon in the past. They actually, you know, uh, want to make it bad for these dissidents because they want them to leave. They want them to leave and flee to the U.S. because they know that that's like a logistical and, you know, uh, pretty much everything nightmare for the U.S., right? Mass migration doesn't is, is difficult for the, for the receiving party. And... Basically, they're like, oh, great. All of our dissonance get to run away, right? And then you got to deal with our dissonance. And what we're left over with is just all the complacency. Isn't people. that what Scarf, the premise of Scarface is in the very, very beginning of the show? <laughs> and Castro, they're basically like deporting all of their criminals. And that's, that's how, right. and that's how uh, Tony Montana, because I, I, I honestly don't very, I don't know very much about Cuba at all. So, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not. I'm getting my history from Scarface, but wasn't there, um, you know, they, you know, they sent all these people into refugee and they based not refugee camps, but basically kind of like these migrant camps and, and yeah. Florida. And a lot of them were gotten to the drug trade, like Tony Montana. Yeah. And I think obviously that, that film has been years since I've seen this movie, but like that, that film like over glorifies or over exemplifies the, like the criminal aspects of the people who who fled from Cuba, right? And, you know, that's not, I don't think that's indicative of the types of people who are legitimately fleeing from Cuba from, you know, from communist dictators. Um, but what is true about that is that uh, the actual government itself does engage in forced, you know, expulsions of, the, of their own people, of their own dissidents. Um, you know, if they're not disappearing people, they're you know, either threatening their lives or their, or in some cases, as I'm, as I'm trying to point out, they're, they're making them leave. And, uh, the, you know, the, the wet foot, dry foot policy is no more, right? I, th- I believe if I'm not mistaken, Obama 
put the kibosh on that one when he normalized relations with Cuba. That's when, you know, we were able to start doing some light travel and like some light trade and stuff like that. Part of the deal was, you know, you can't, part of the deal was that we wouldn't accept people um, as Cuban refugees anymore just by, by virtue of getting on land. Um, unless there was some like credible threat to their lives, which in many cases Cubans can probably prove that. Um, but, you know, we don't have that policy anymore where they can kind of just come in. I guess that raises kind of a national question about, um, you know, migration. And, and in this case, it's very much illegal immigration. And what I find kind of very interesting about this is like people like Marco Rubio, who is a Cuban, who is a, you know, uh, representative for, for Florida, right? So it's, you know, very astute that he's speaking out about this because he actually does represent a lot of Cubans, Cuban-Americans. You know, I'm, I'm not clear on his position in this respect, and, and I'm not clear on the rights position in this for this particular issue, you know, because on the one hand, we want to stick it to the communists. On the other hand, we don't want immigration, or at least the illegal immigration. You know, it's kind of a difficult situation right now. The rights view on this is so to them to the to the right they see cubans as basically americans who are escaping communism and they're going to fit right into our society so give them give Mm -hmm. them all to us they want to live in america they want to be american so let's take the cubans cubans vote republican um i think they're the only um um hispanic group to I'm not sure if it's majority anymore that vote Republican, but they have the largest percentage of conservatives at the very least. They might mm-hmm. be the majority of conservatives. So they're like, hey, we'll take some more conservatives. I mm-hmm. think that is their mentality on it. Now, what I, my opinion is, um, as someone who kind of, at least I see myself as someone who steps out of both political camps, um, you know, I'm obviously no fan of the Cuban government and their economic systems and you know the the government they have in place i don't think it's good but i also think it's bad to put sanctions on them and embargoes and Mm -hmm. it's obviously making things a lot worse and i don't i think the meddling that we've done in cuba has been terrible it's been awful i mean yeah we don't like fidel castro but how many times did we try to assassinate him like 130 times or something like that? Something ridiculous? My favorite is the bomb in his cigars. Yeah, the bomb. <laughs> and that's the, fa- the real famous one. But yeah, um, people forget that Batista was a terrible, was a bastard as well. Like he was a corrupt oligarch mafia figure who ran that country. Yep. You know, who was, a, who was a dictator. And there were extreme amounts of poverty that were going on in Cuba, you know, prior to the communist dictatorship that, you know, that succeeded it. Usually when a communist dictatorship takes control of a government or takes control of a society, it's because that society had some awful imbalance or some awful wealth disparity that was going on. And that was the case with Cuba. There was an awful wealth disparity going on um, right. between you know people who were wealthy and connected and people who were dirt poor and obviously would like the prospects of sharing wealth now for the validity of communism as a as an economic system as far as dealing with the realities of prices and 
and scarcity, no, it's not going to work. It's always going to end up in disaster. But um, I guess I guess the point I'm trying to make is that um, you got to understand the reasons why communist governments come to power and come to place. You know, they don't just spring up and kind of normal, healthy nations. Um, it's right. usually countries with really horrible or really big imbalances of, of rich and poor. Now, um, as far as like sanctions, what? There's no reason to put sanctions on them. There's no there's no reason. And what you're doing and what the right doesn't get, you know, it's like we need to have the back of the freedom loving people of Cuba. Right. That's the that's when the you do that. Right now. So here's what you're doing. You're giving more legitimacy to that system because they can say, well, it's not the system that's wrong. It's the outsiders. It's the embargoes. It's the sanctions. It's all this stuff, and that's why we're having these economic problems. Is because of the outside, which, right? Usually, that's that's the Iran argument right so, now. So, yeah, like you're legitimizing the government, and you're also giving them an out. So, um, right, you have normal relationships with them. You have a normal relationship with them. Don't sanction them. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's my position. Like. You don't have to agree with their but economic system. But they're violating system. human rights. They're killing people. They're disappearing people. You know, like, are, are you going to have a normal relationship with, you know, with countries like that? Well, I'll, I'll pull the Trump and do you th- say, do you think we're angels? I mean, what, <laughs> no, country, what, could, I what country could have a relationship with the United States government when it comes to uh, killing people? I mean, maybe right. not as our, our own... Well, even our own citizens. I mean, just like yeah, look no, we at kill plenty cops that just murder people. Like, look at right. You know, you can make that same. Like, all right, if there's, I think I've made this argument before. If there was some higher society or higher nation than the United States, and you know, we had to kowtow to someone else, they could take so much shit that we've done and be like, wow, this country is is crazy like they are killing people <laughs> yeah. they're shooting there's you know they're killing all these people they're blowing up countries near them they're they're genociding people i mean you could i wouldn't say genocide but you could certainly make the argument if you're want to condemn them mm-hmm. um you could make the the case to to have a very aggressive hostile foreign policy if you if you wanted to against the united states you wouldn't yeah. even, and i wanted to say cherry pick but i mean you don't even need the cherry pick. You could just be like, oh, yeah, no, look, look what they did pick. to these other things. countries. They destroyed mm-hmm. them. <laughs> um, right. And it's not even just the foreign policy. It's also the domestic stuff, too. There's, pl- there's plenty of ways to get at us on, on the domestic front as well. Look what they're doing to their their whistleblowers and their journalists. They're trying to get right. Julian Assange. They're trying to extradite him from England to prosecute him for just uncovering secrets. And they have basically exiled a, a whistleblower and you know they have a long history of putting journalists in jail i mean there's a long history in the united states of putting journalists in jail i mean we right. always talk about and not just journalists but whistleblowers um you know we talk about daniel ellsbury or we have been talking about him a lot lately i mean the only reason why he didn't go to jail is because nixon was insane and nixon fucked up <laughs> nixon yeah, exactly. fucked up by burglarizing his psychiatrist's office and, you know, allegedly trying to assassinate him too. And, you know, trying to use the judge, 
kind of bribed the judge with like a political appointee on the case. So, you know, obviously it was kind of a fraud case, but I mean, that's off the point. Mm -hmm. I don't, I just don't think that we should be involved and um, do anything to them. Just, let it solve itself. I, I tend, I tend to, I tend to agree with you. I'm going to play the devil's advocate that I'm, that I'm hearing, uh, you know, from a lot of these, especially right wing groups. So what if, you know, what's going to happen when, you know, if we don't do something about it, what's going to happen when, you know, Soviet Union, you know, Spetsnaz forces land on the beaches of, of Cuba to help the government put down the insurrection? You what? know, like. What happens what if China decides to get more, you know, friendly with them and, and prop them? Now we've got enemies on our doorstep, blah, blah, blah. If that's the reality that these right wingers live in, then, I mean, I don't I don't know where to start. It's going to have to start with like a heavy dose of of like of uh, reality checks. And I, mean, I don't even know where to start if that's the mentality, if you think that there's going to be another Cuban missile crisis, basically kind of what they're insinuating that, Oh no, mm-hmm. what if China comes in and puts missiles, nuclear warheads on right. Cuba? I mean, that is not going to happen. And so what if they have trade and you know what, if with it, China? Like who cares? Exactly. If it, if it, if it does, if it does, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but you know, it could be our own, because of our own doing, you know, we've pursued aggressive embargoes and aggressive sanctions on this on this country, and you know, it, it, they obviously have a shitty, you know, governmental system that wasn't going to work in the first place. But trust me, those embargoes weren't helping either. It accelerated that by quite a bit, to the you know to the detriment of the people that live on the island, and you know, right now they're relegated to doing business with the likes of like fucking Iran. And you know Venezuela and like all of the, all the ragtag countries that are you know, kind of outside of the the world know, the United order. States they're, they're outside of the yeah, world the, order. You the know. imperial order. The, you know? the imperial order. So, they're they're the bad countries. That's what they're kind right. of labeled. Like you know the bad right. guys. And and you know if if we're if we're if we're gonna if we're saying that we're afraid. That you know these big superpower countries that are kind of outside of that order. Superpowers um, are gonna. Superpower. There's no superpower country besides the United States. Uh, Well, nuclear armed power, or whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, And any of these countries, you know, are going to have a greater influence on a country that we've basically put in a box. It's like, of 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 course, like it's it's. Who else are they going to turn to for help? Who else are they going to turn to do to do trade with? Who else are they going to turn to to like? you know exchange knowledge and information with when we're basically putting them in a box we're saying that nobody can talk to these people and and you know what that's what led to the that's what led to the cuban missile crisis we didn't have to isolate castro and you know isolate the government that came after batista we could have you know had a decent relationship but when we have this antagonistic relate when, when we had these antagonistic relationships with these countries because they didn't do something we wanted them to do then they turned to the soviet union and that's what what ultimately happened with a lot of countries in the arab world and as well as south america and you know cuba where they turned to the soviet union because you know that was really their their only option um even southeast asia as well you know a lot of countries turn to communism 
because you know they may have been you know maybe the population was looking for something more um you know more nationalistic but you know kind of communism kind of fed, met that hunger you know i don't think most people besides like the super intellects are really sold on on communism i think the the population is more just like you're looking for some type of national relief and that kind of fits the hunger and um yeah but I, I just don't think there's a reason to have these antagonistic relationships with these countries and certainly not make these extreme um calls for you know i've heard some people call for military action which is like yeah last time we tried that that worked really well right remember yeah. I mean, I don't remember personally because I wasn't born yet, but I remember there was a certain bay with, you know, a name of an animal that makes bacon and pork that ended up being a disaster. So don't <laughs> do that. I don't. I think it's dumb to do that. And don't sanction them. Just have a normal relationship with them and then let their government change on its own. Usually, you know, things change. Look at Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam is still technically, I guess, a communist country, but... They're not this crazy nut job. I mean, I I think they do have. Right, some they're not like a pariah laws, state. <laughs> they're know, not like... a pariah state. Like most yeah. governments around the world are not just going around murdering people for fun. As much as I hate government, right. most governments around the world, right. including our own government, it's not like, hmm, who do we want to kill today in our society? Hmm, right for fun. Hmm, I want to mm-hmm. kill that new young family with that cute little baby ha 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 we're the government ha 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 screw you america ha 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 we'll kill everyone ha ha um there's a scene all right there's this really um corny chuck norris movie that came out in the 80s oh man i forget what it's called i I remember watching it with my mom when i was young um but this movie is about like a bunch of i think it's about a bunch of cubans who invade florida and just start committing terrorist attacks. What? Man, I need to th- I need to find this movie. Movie. It is just it's it's like a propaganda film. Oh, well, yeah. Chuck all Chuck Norris movies in the 80s were propaganda films. Cuba Chuck mm. Norris film. I need to find this. It is shocking. Invasion USA. It is. Type that in Google. the The art of it is like the f- most famous picture of Chuck Norris. Oh yeah, yeah. I, re- I, I recognize this. Yeah, and the two guns shooting. Yes, Chuck Norris. There the is two Uzis. This it's about the Cubans. They do like a, a Normandy style beachhead invasion of like a Florida beach. And they do it at night, and they just start committing terror attacks. And there's a part where this guy is going around like in a drive-by. He's going around different houses in this neighborhood, in this suburban neighborhood. And he has an RPG, and he's launching the ARP rockets into it. homes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's launching <laughs> rockets into Like, that's homes. just the indiscriminate shit that they're just going to do, right? And it is just the most absurd film. It is just an 80s film. 
This is the most 80s thing that has ever been released in that time period. Just a Chuck, this Cuban guy just going house to house, just launching rockets and, and destroying. The, it's, it's ridiculous. Child, another childhood <laughs> memory that came up. I want to watch, watch this, this just for the sheer, uh, just a throwback to another time. But, um, all right, you want to move on to the final story for me? I would say Haiti, but I don't know. I'm just so behind on it, and I'm so confused over who killed what and what happened. And have you been let's following Haiti at all? Time. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do a short. Let's do the shorter one, and then we'll we'll end it up. Okay. Yeah, Haiti. It. I. I don't even know where to start with Haiti. I don't know who killed this guy. There has been a lot of different suspects. People are saying Colombia, America. China is even being blamed. China. I don't know. I need to get someone who knows. We'll, we need we'll to get, get someone who knows that. what they're talking well, about with Haiti. Another time. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty crazy. It's story. Pretty interesting story. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk about this Ben and Jerry scandal. Mm-hmm. This is a scandal we need to talk about. So, did you hear about? I saw before before you even start this. Like, I I I am not up to date on this, and I'm glad that you wanted to talk about this and that you've done a little research on it because all I saw was uh, it was like a headline and it said U.S. tries to you know uh, put the freeze on you know Israel-Palestine you know conflict but Ben and Jerry's had something else to say about it and I was like I can't even read this nonsense <laughs> I was like why where the hell does Ben and Jerry's play into this whole story and how the hell is this even relevant? So please, All right. Henry, enlighten let, me. What let the me hell is going on? This story and why it's a big deal too. Ben and Jerry's announced that it will stop selling ice cream in occupied Palestinian territories. Now, have you heard of the term PEP before? PEP. PEP. P-E-P. P-E-P. No. Nope. So what, what that, that stands for is progressive except for palestine mm. so um progressive if there's a progressive and you know they're progressive on things like the minimum wage and climate change and you know all their you know all the progressive policies they they usually advocate Woke for. about everything um but if they're not supporting the palestinian plight then they're called pet progressive for except for Palestine. And Ben and Jerry's, as we know, is they've always kind of supported, um, I think they're supported Bernie Sanders. Um, the the owner of Ben and Jerry's is, you know, a big progressive and, you know, they're always supporting these these policies and these movements. And um, knows they're right, you know, it's not, it's their, they're right. I, I like Ben and Jerry's flavors, ice cream. And um, they have been accused as being pep for a while. So, They've been selling ice cream in the occupied territories, so the West Bank and East Jerusalem and, um, well, settlements. And um, people, progressives, have been complaining about this. They've been saying, hey, you need to take a stand. You know, how do you stand for all these progressive values yet, you know, you are basically uh, accomplices in this brutal occupation? With you know, with you selling ice cream and not saying anything, so now Ben and Jerry's is taking a stand. They're saying, "No, we're done. We can't be involved in this anymore. We're not selling ice cream in occupied Palestinian territories." Here is the real 
interesting thing that's going on. Israel's ambassador to the U.S. sent letters to the governors of 35 U.S. states that have laws in the books against BDS, saying that, and I quote, that this was uh, the de facto adoption of anti-Semitic practices. And Israel's foreign minister, Yair Lapid, said on Twitter, I have this up, over 30 states in the United States have passed anti-BDS legislation in recent years. I plan on asking each of them to enforce these laws against Ben and Jerry's. They will not treat the state of Israel like this without a response. Oh, shit. So these anti-BDS laws that Israel lobbied states to pass. So they're lobbying states to pass them. They, they lobby state governments, too. Right. So what they do is that they deny state funds to those who advocate for the boycott of Israel. So some or of at least state, the ones that don't that don't go against boycott, divest, and, and what's the S in BDS? If they say sanction, boycott, divestment, sanction. So sanction. if they say that they're supporting or if they they want to do a boycott of of Israeli products or or things like that, then. Um, the government, the state governments has, um, you know, they can deny them, you know, state funds and subsidies and things like that or relief funds. Um, some of these states require state employees to divest their own pensions from companies that boycott Israel. And it also requires state contractors to sign an oath pledging not to boycott Israel. So if you're a state contractor... Hmm. You have to sign an oath pledging not to boycott Israel. So whose business is it who you boycott? If there's ever a violation of the First Amendment, that's this is it. And whenever, in that, I understand. whenever they're brought mm-hmm. to court, they're always ruled unconstitutional. And just kind of think of the gall of a foreign state lobbying your local state that you live in to shut you up. If you want to talk about their crimes, like imagine if that were China, like imagine if China was lobbying your local state and saying, hey, you can't talk about Uyghurs or you can't boycott Uyghur or Hong Kong. But imagine that circumstance. It is insane. The fact that the Israeli government lobbies state governments, it's insane. And now politicians are getting involved and starting the virtue signal their support as well. Bill de Blasio, he came out and he said that he's boycotting Ben and Jerry's. Wow. So Bill, Bill de Blasio, I guess that's good news for Bill because, you know, another scoop of Ben and Jerry's for, for Bill will probably give his, <laughs> give his fat ass diabetes. So I don't think he needs <laughs> any more Ben and Jerry. So that might be a good health decision in the long run for de Blasio. But, uh-huh. you know, of course, he had to be, oh, yeah, well, this is anti-Semitic. Ben and Jerry's is an anti-Semitic ice cream now, um, which they're not. Um, but now, like, all these Republicans, usually this type of behavior is way more, I mean, Democrats are really bad, too, but Republicans are just god-awful terrible on this, like, Senator James, uh, Senator James Lankford out of Oklahoma, he called for an, mm-hmm. all, in, an outright ban 
of Ben and Jerry's in the state of Oklahoma. <laughs> you can't ban so preventing, a, preventing a, a private company call, from doing business. You can't the insanity of that. It is just insane. It's crazy. It is just absolutely nuts. And it honestly is so dumb. It's dumb because it's calling more attention to it. You know, if you're the Israeli government, right. you want to put that, you want to sweep that under the rug as not have people talk about that as much as possible. Like, just be like, all right, whatever. We're mm-hmm. just not going to comment on Ben and Jerry's not selling it. That would be the smart thing to do. We're just not going right. to comment so no one asks questions. But now people are like, now it's on the news. And people are like, okay, so why are we, uh, why is Ben and Jerry's boycotting Israel? Is it because they're like horrible racist or horrible anti-Semitics? No, the, they're not anti-Semitic. They're just, they're, uh, so why are they doing it? Well, it's because, you know, there's, uh, you know, uh, apartheid and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, kind of horror and criminal activity going on in these occupied areas. And, oh, well, I didn't know that. Like, why would you even bring attention to it by kind of making this media scoop around it? People aren't going to stop eating Ben and Jerry's. This this kind of reminds me of like a like a, a different story um, that we can take as like the opposite side of the spectrum. You, you heard the story about Chick Fil A recently? Like the, um, the I think story. I've heard. Uh, that there's always been stories about people like boycotting Chick Fil A about well, the yeah, I mean that, that has something to do marriage. with it. But but what what you know? So New York has a bunch of like rest stops along their freeways that they're building and stuff like that, and and uh, Chick Fil A had a contract to you know, uh, create, um, to, to invest their own private money into developing, you know, um, a restaurant on one of these rest stops in New York state. And apparently there's some, I don't know if it's a law or just like a guideline or something like that, um, that, uh, state money or like state contracts can't be awarded to, you know, anti LGBTQ, you know, um, companies and things like that. And, you know, I'm not going to get too deeply into it because I'm not like the the foremost expert on it. But there's been some questions about you know whether or not Chick Fil A supported you know shit like Pray the Gay Away because Truett Cathy, the you know the founder of um, of Chick Fil A, was like pretty anti-gay and like stuff like that. So there's an actually a group called a Pray the Gay Away. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a just thing. funny. It's not funny because of the homophobia it's I mean, funny it's, because the, the it's actual just, practice is not it's funny, just but funny it's, it's a funny term yeah. it's like a, it's it's not that it's even a funny term it's it's like uh making fun of an old um redneck or something like that it's just you're making fun of the actual bigotry because it's so uh kind of ant- archaic <laughs> that someone would think of that but right, <laughs> anyway <I'm sorry. laughs> so 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 the opposite side of this spectrum here is that you know, obviously there's no foreign government involved in this particular story, but, you know, there's this big backlash that's happening against New York State because, you know, um, Chick-fil-A is a private company and Chick-fil-A also, you know, their their stated goal or mission isn't to, like, be anti-LGBTQ and all this other stuff. And, and you know, folks on the right are, you know, rallying to Chick-fil-A's defense, you know, of this. And, you know, they see it as like a, you know, I guess maybe maybe this isn't as similar as I thought, but you know, uh, it's it's not quite uh, freedom of speech <laughs> or the curtailing of freedom of speech there. But 
Um, it's like this private company that decides to take a stance or not take a stance in the case of uh, Chick-fil-A and, and how local governments and their policies you know, can sometimes cause a little bit of, you know, stir the pot a little bit, you know, depending on what side of the spectrum they fall on. And in this case of Ben and Jerry's, it seems like, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that the, the majority of the 30 states that um, have anti-BDS movements are probably more conservative than the others. But I guess I wouldn't be surprised to see a bunch of liberal ones on there as well. Um, yeah, it's both. It's, it's both. But most of them are, are, Repub- are red states. But it's it's. It is both of it. Um, it is just I I absolutely think that is just. It's one of those things. Even if you're not like, don't care about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, or just you know don't really have a strong opinion on it, you have to have an opinion on a foreign state lobbying your state government. On it, it, it is, I I I just. It's a toxic relationship, and I think the Israeli government is really um, is um, going to regret this in the long run because um, it is just adding more uh, exposure to you know what they're doing over there. Yeah, um, this show is sponsored by sorry, Ben and Jerry's, you, by the way. Just want to let you know. My, All right, we're gonna wrap this episode up. Um, thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of bro history. Um, I know it's been two weeks, but we're back on track now episodes out every single Sunday. Um, uh, thanks for your patience. If you want to support us, you can support us on, um, by rating and reviewing our podcast. So rate and review the show. That is the number one way to help us grow. And you can also join us on our Patreon. Our Patreon is bro history slash Henry, um, excuse me, bro history patreon slash bro history it will be in the notes of the show so join us on patreon um extra content slack um communicate with us we have a great community and we will be putting out an episode for you next week peace Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.